we are now concluding the Constitution line by line. Actually, we've concluded. We have concluded. <laughs> but now what does it all mean? We've actually had people say, man, that's a lot of material. Can you summarize it? So here's kind of our summary wrap-up of what we've been through. I'm Don Frazier. I'm a historian. I'm Paul Fabrizio, a political scientist, and I'm just thinking, summarize the Constitution? Well, at least summarize our experience and some of the things that we may have learned or thought about or reconsidered. Number one, Don and I haven't shot each other yet, so I think that's, that's right. a, you know, you can have civil discussions and arguments about the Constitution without resorting to violence, and I think that is a, actually a very good point. I think it is, too. No ad hominem attacks other than me jabbing you for being from California. And you from Texas. Correct. But, I mean— Let's make this to a larger sense about the Constitution. What the Constitution did is it established a guidepost, it established a framework, it established institutions that took political debate and allowed the debate to take place within the context of those institutions and set up rules that allowed the will of the people to be heard in those institutions. Calendar elections, for one thing. Yeah, sure. I mean— you can have debates, you can have discussions, but at some point, the people are going to have a say in it, yeah. and the people get their say through the Constitution, and it's going to be played out through the institutions that are provided. I wish that there was more civil debate. <laughs> or more debate. I, I, I agree with you. Yes. I think that we as scholars hold up the Lincoln-Douglas debates as the epitome of what it should be, and we fail to realize that the Lincoln-Douglas debates are such outliers. Yeah, they're such a show pony. Yeah, from what typical debate has been all through American history. Well, sure, and I'm just thinking about civil discourse amongst the people today. <laughs> Again, I don't know how to... I'm not sure how to fix it. But I, I would be happy if not necessarily for the civil discourse, for at least some basic knowledge. Well, I think things. that that's the beginning of this civil discourse. Yeah. Uh, and that's actually why we embarked upon this journey. Yes. I mean, we were not commissioned by anybody. No. We haven't been paid by anybody. No. This, this really <laughs> isn't even part of our curriculum. No. <laughs> it's just we something. We were bored. Yeah, we, well, we looked at each other one day after <laughs> doing a radio show in downtown Abilene and said, you know what we really need to do, not want to do, but need to do, is go through the United States Constitution line by line. And what spurred us was really the lack of knowledge about the Constitution. Oh, there's yawning ignorance of the Constitution. And But everybody's an expert at the same time. <laughs> that's, that's right. And the other thing is that just because there's words there, you still have to look at those words and what do they mean. And you looked at it from a certain perspective. I looked at it from a different perspective. We agreed. We disagreed at various points. It's still part of our government. So Yes. Uh, this exchange is actually part of the process that was thought of yeah. and embodied in the Constitution. Yeah, the framers, I guess it goes back to your point. I'm going to concede it. Civil discourse. The framers created the mechanism to do it. Yeah. They gave us the freedom to do it. And 
So we took advantage of the freedoms that we are offered, especially in the First Amendment, to present this thing. Yeah. So thank you to the framers. Yeah, and it's James the, Madison, dude. Yeah, since we're talking about the framers, you know, oftentimes the people that built this document are pictured as almost semi effete yeah. <laughs> sort of manby pamby guys wearing wigs that are ever so proper. Well, that is James Madison. But that's not the rest of the yeah, crowd in not the room. The, yeah, I know. I mean it's like if you took a Harvard Law trained lawyer mm -hmm. and threw him in a room with mark cuban and shark tank <laughs> yeah shark tank the shark Tank, all the shark tank people <laughs> threw in a zuckerberg a donald trump yeah. a uh a hillary clinton to be sure yeah uh if you threw them all in the room said all right y'all come up with something mm -hmm. and we're gonna lock you in this hot stuffy room in philadelphia and, and by the way, you'll probably have dysentery while you're there. Absolutely. Um, and also throw in a good leavening of lobbyists. Yes. And pounding that, at the door. Oh, pounding there. at the door and being inside the room. Mm -hmm. uh, lobbying for their special interests and their particular worldview. I mean, this was a group of guys that were all trying to make sure that they got a little slice of this pie. Right. And this document that emerges from this very robust group of thinkers, mm -hmm. uh, people of action, mm -hmm. uh, people of schemes yes. and dreams, uh, is a pretty remarkable document. And add to that, they all went through a revolution against the British. Yes. And that left a mark. And they had also set up. Two forms of government, the Continental Congress that didn't succeed, yeah. the Articles of Confederation that clearly failed, and so they were back for their third try, and they had to deal with Shays' Rebellion just a year before that certainly taught them they needed to proceed carefully. Yeah, but they you're right, they'd failed twice before, and that taught them some things. Now, did any of these guys have any background in government prior to the revolutionary movement some of them were state legislators okay at their colonial uh legislative assembly the house of burgess for sure. example in virginia so so some of them did and by the but time, at the lower echelons yeah yes at the lower echelons and then by the time they got together to write the constitution you know many were veterans of the articles of confederation sure so they had lived through and combat government. veterans yeah and combat veterans too so they had lived through action as you said and then political action and confronted political failure. Correct. And so how do they fix it? But none of them had been royal appointees. No. And no. so these guys were always on the pushers, yes. not the pullers, Yes. Uh, into the government governing process. Yeah, but even then there were some who were more hesitant than others who were concerned about the consequences of what they were doing. Sure. They were concerned about the United States' place in the world. You know, relationships with England, relationships with France, Spain, that sort of stuff. So how do you craft a country that could succeed in the context of all that? And that people would take seriously. 
Yes. Because I don't think the British ever took them seriously. Right. I agree. And they said, you know, you knuckleheads are going to fail. We're just going to play out the rope until you hit the end. Yep. That's exactly right. Uh, I, I was also struck going through this process, not only, you know, the very robust personalities that mm-hmm. were in there, uh, not, <laughs> not, not the sort of soft, right. <laughs> you know, mannered, uh, uh, gentleman that we might have imagined, but I'm also amazed at how much accretion of experience mm-hmm. is then in place in the Constitution, like you alluded to. But you know, little things like the separation of church and state. Mm-hmm. You know, that's one of them that always comes up, and it might surprise people. You know, I spent a lot of time in Plymouth, Massachusetts. Yes, yes, as it turns out, and it might surprise people that the Pilgrim separatist. Who were you know America's first secessionists, by the way, uh, did not believe in church weddings. Did you know that? No, I didn't. Know yeah, that. they didn't believe in church weddings because these people were in solo scriptura, and okay. they didn't find anything in scripture about weddings, marriages, okay. but not weddings. weddings. Okay. So they looked at marriage as something that is mentioned in the Bible, but weddings is rendering unto Caesar. Oh. And so you had civil ceremonies. Okay. But not religious ceremonies. Religious ceremonies smacks of being a papist <laughs> of Catholicism. <laughs> and so and you certainly uh, didn't want to go there. Yeah, and and so there's a very clear distinction between church and state. Yeah. At the very foundation, I mean at the the very foundation of this country. So that struck me as is interesting when we started really unraveling things like that. And then of course the second amendment. Yeah. <laughs> that that is going to uh probably bring a lot of comments in the uh uh beneath that video in our uh it sure will YouTube uh it's, experience. It sure will. And not just there the third amendment uh about quartering of soldiers a yeah. huge issue to the framers. Yeah. Nothing to us. But it drove the framers to make decisions oh, and absolutely. to say things. And that then has consequences today because what does it say about your home? Correct. And that then goes into the Fourth Amendment and the protection we have against the government. I think one of the things that really struck me was the fear that the framers had about the power of government. They were giving the government great power. But then they were concerned about the consequences of that power in the lives of ordinary Americans. So they wrote into the Declaration of Independence, I mean, into the Bill of Rights, these restrictions on government power. But somehow they kind of got over that fear. They, they did. When, when <laughs> the they, amendments when, pile up. Right. And, but still, there was this, this idea that the government can do wrong and we need to ameliorate some of those effects and that's why they are so specific in the fourth and fifth and sixth amendment well and i'd argue that that was the the original intent behind states rights as well to help ameliorate yeah federal overreach right and then over time we realized well the state government can do things well, to you too and absolutely. we need to control that the so. local homeowners association can do <laughs> they, things they to can you. too and you can't do much about that but you can do stuff about the state government well it's a lot easier corporation to in the 14th amendment yeah but it's a lot easier to attend 
a local town hall it or is. a homeowners association meeting yes or a city council meeting mm-hmm. than it is to lobby congress it is and in essence that's one of the if i can use the word failures of american democracy today that we pay more attention to what's going on in Washington, D.C. than we do to what's going on in Abilene, Texas. Correct. And All you'd have to do is look at the streets in this town and you well, figure that out. You, you look at the streets, but but I look at at, at the, the turnout in elections. See, that's 50, the difference between political y- science yes, and historians. Yes, it is. I'm looking at physical evidence. You're looking at, you know, statistics. <laughs> 60% of the American people voted in the last election for the president and 10% voted for the mayor of Abilene. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you? That people aren't paying attention or they don't care about what's going on here. Yet who has the greatest effect on your individual life, how you go about things? Day to day. Day to day. It's your local government that we don't care. Whether or not you have to get a front-end alignment or not. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, what about the age of social media? For instance, you know, the, the current president has yes. been referred to as racist, yes, especially in light of current events. So then the social media posts pop up, you know, if you don't condemn him as a racist, then you're a racist as well, and, you know, that sort of stuff that tends to polarize the conversation. How how do we get past that, or do we? Um, I... <laughs> How do we get past it? I'm Come not on, sure. Paul. You need to fix all of our ills. <laughs> yeah, exactly. I'm going to just sit back here and eat the popcorn while you solve oh, this. Okay. I'm, first of all, I'm not going to solve that or much of anything. Number two, Very this is the beauty and the ugliness of the Constitution. Yes. Okay. How about okay, that? This is really what political debate is all about. So I'm not sure we get past it. We can vote someone out if we want to, but it's just part and parcel of political debate today, and it's no different than political debate after the Civil War, before the Civil War, or at the time of the Revolutionary War. I mean, we have had these arguments before. The words might be a little different. But what is now carried out in social media used to be carried out in neighborhood bars. It carried out in neighborhood a newspapers. Brick with, a, a brick br- with a parchment on yeah, it through exactly. your window. Think of the anarchist movement in the late you know, 1800s. I'm thinking of the original American terrorist, okay. the Sons of Liberty. <laughs> the Sons of Liberty. You know, <laughs> went and terrorized people. Yeah. You know, and dipped them in hot tar and rolled them in feathers and yeah. rode them out on a rail, you know. We're, we're not... We're not nice to each other. I'm not sure we ever were nice to each other. And what we're seeing now, I would argue, is still being controlled by the institutions that were set up by the framers. I'll buy that. Okay, we're, we're, we're not shooting each other yet. No. Okay? That took place in the 1960s. 1860s too. Okay, yeah. <laughs> but I mean, even even in our own lifespan, we have seen more intense political division than we have today. Correct. And we forget about that. Yet, in the hyperbole of the moment, yes, uh, we always make these great declarations. Yeah. That oh man, it's never been this bad, which proves that very few people understand history or even read history or think about history. So so we're, both our professions really have failed 
People don't read the Constitution, don't well, because, attempt to understand. That's political science. People don't understand history. Because our disciplines are hard, Paul. Yeah. You have to think about stuff. Yes. And and we don't offer an immediate return on investment. That's true. We, we, that's true. I mean, what is satisfaction in a political debate? It's winning an election, maybe. Yeah. And then you have to try to get the laws passed and— you know, are you going to be successful at that? Yeah, I mean, it's a dogfight. Yeah, and and plowing through history is a dogfight. Oh man, were you uh were you struck by the commercial comments in the Constitution? Because that certainly resonates with me. One of the things I learned in this was a greater appreciation for the commercial interests of the framers of the Constitution. Sure. I had always taken the perspective that the framers really didn't care about it too much. There is one clause, the Commerce Clause, that talks about economics, and the rest of it just really doesn't. And in fact, that's a well-known perspective in political science that I was adopting. And you came along with a historical perspective and said, well, no, let's look at what the framers were, what their jobs were, what they needed to go about succeeding in their businesses, and look how that played into the Constitution. And that was a real eye-opening experience for me. Yeah, cool. I had no idea that I was debating uh, mainstream thought and political science. Uh, no, it's not hard to do. <laughs> <laughs> I don't go to y'all's conventions, I'm just saying. I hope y'all are snappy dressers, that's all I'm saying. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Unlike how I am today. <laughs> Whatever. <laughs> okay. Go ahead. No, that's. Uh, I'm just kind of... Thinking back on what all we've done here and what all we've gone through. One of the themes... I hope it finds an audience. I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Um, it's certainly going to be something that I will be using in my classes. Sure. And hopefully you can use in yours. And yeah, but beyond that, we don't hopefully... teach at a mega state university where we have no. 600 students per section. No. This will be in an upper division class more than likely, or maybe even a lower division class, but... It may have exposure to, you know, 30 students a semester. Yeah, but, well, you never know where things go. Well, you never know where things go, but in a lot of ways, I feel like our efforts are a message in a bottle. That's okay. Okay? <laughs> That's were, okay. Were the framers thinking any differently? No, I think that they were probably putting a message in the bottle, too, <laughs> saying that All right, this is our best work for now yeah for now dot 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 what occurs to me as you go through the amendments is how cynical yes <laughs> they you become believe it yes and and how much they depart from the idealism of the framers yes and these yeah, these are the same framers but yes you got it yeah yeah they they we're chastened by experience. Well, I'm talking about even the later amendments. Okay. So didn't... when we get into the Civil War amendments, and then oh. we get into the Progressive Era amendments, and then we get into the post-World War II amendments and the Civil Rights Era amendments. There seems to be, and I don't know if this is the correct way to describe it, but if you look at those amendments, there seems to be more of a triumphalism 
about yes. it, that we won and we're going to be imposing these things on you. Yes. And I, are... and I have no problems with most of what they imposed on us, yeah. except for the income tax. But, <laughs> but still— It's funny the things that are your triggers <laughs> versus mine. But still, they really were like a club— beating over us. You think about the radical Republicans Yes. after the Civil War. You think about the progressives. Yes. They were trying to fix the ills of the country in a way that left no room for debate. What's interesting is a lot of times you see political cartoons from the 1850s, and it shows the Constitution being torn up. Mm Mm-hmm. And to me, that's exactly what happened with the Civil War. Mm-hmm. And then it was duct taped together and some other stuff was duct taped on as, you know, on the back of it and down at the foot of it. And so the document that emerges today has got some battle scars. Oh, yeah. See, I, I would approach it a different way. The Constitution was out there, it was written, but it wasn't until the Civil War was completed that the document really was accepted. Was complete, so, was complete in and of itself. Yeah, so in other okay. words, the document was put on the wall, and we're going to pay lip service to it, but we had to beat the bloody hell out of each other first before we accepted the, the, the idea that we're really a united country. And until we got to that point, until we called each other Americans, yeah. then that document didn't come off the wall and get down and get serious. As opposed to Virginians or Texans exactly. or New Yorkers. Exactly. Even if that coercion came at the point of a bayonet. You better believe it. And see, that's one of the things that I don't think we like to think about. But when you look at the history of the world and you think about governments, there's always that bayonet behind government. And we are so successful, I would argue, because we create a format for nasty debates to take place and leave the bayonets back in the storage room. What's interesting, too, and it plays out throughout American history, is that we have thrown what in other contexts would have amounted to a coup Mm d'etat, but we do it in slow motion. We have slow motion revolutions in this country so that you can kind of work them out, take a lunch break, come back, pick up where you left off. Argue some more. Yeah, argue some Write more. Write a couple articles. But you don't have You're people manning the barricades. You no. don't have armored vehicles driving through crowds. No. I mean, uh, we still have the amount of political churning. Yes. But we just do it at such a slower pace that it's not – as dramatic right it's frustrating it's frustrating for those who want to climb the barricades yeah makes people angry it does and they stay angry but they also grow old they do and they become old and angry and then they die (laughs) right (laughs) but they're not dying as a 24 year old revolutionary right at a barricade right burning tires and by having calendar elections every two years for congress yeah every four years for president we have a way to let off steam yeah, I mean, that's... You that's, build up for something, focus on the election. Yep. <laughs> you release the valve. That's exactly right. And then, okay, relax. That's right. Celebrate the new president when he comes in. Or grumble. Or she comes in, or grumble, and then move on. Okay, and they start slowly building the pressure again. Yeah. And start building the pressure again for another... Poof. Yeah. I can't do it as well as you. 
Different sort of escape valve in California, I guess. <laughs> now, Mine sounded like I was opening a beer, I'm just admitting. I thought a tennis can, but anyway. Okay. Uh, now, here's a question for you. Yes. We call this country the United States. Yes. Are we? Well, that's also a question for you. You know, that's open to debate. Uh, I'm a big fan of regional idiosyncrasies. Mm-hmm. I mean, I like that some things are legal in some states and illegal in others. I agree. And uh, I like uh, regional identity. Mm-hmm. I mean, I I live in in a household that has really two regional identities. Mm-hmm. There's kind of a New England identity on my wife's side, and there's certainly a Texas identity on my side. And it's cool. We can celebrate both those things. Uh, but commercial... Uh, commercial pressures, mm-hmm. uh, centralized government pressures mm-hmm. are all in play to try to knock all that stuff out and make us all very, very homogenous. Yes, that's true. And um, commercially, I mean, you want the the big food corporation wants the same hamburger in New England as there is in Austin, Texas. Yes. And that way they can have economies of scale and efficient distribution, things like that. Education system. Mm -hmm. They want a curriculum, some sort of canon. It's interesting. One of the few disciplines that defied canonization Mm -hmm. was history. Mm-hmm. They could not, I mean, they, they came up with some national history standards, which were immediately ignored. <laughs> and uh, Texas remains well outside um, the mainstream when it comes to uh, curriculum standardization in the U.S. And so I think part of the genius of this country is you can have these regional distinctions and still be pulling in the same direction. I agree. Living in a household with my wife from Virginia. Yes. Me from California, and we're here in Texas. Yeah. So we split the difference. (laughs) (laughs) We split the difference, and we cling together to survive in Texas. Um, What strikes me about all this is that the framers were so cognizant of giving states they're due, but so afraid of giving them too much. And (laughs) Exactly. And when I look at the Constitution, I see a real effort to control the states. Yes. To tell the states, you can do this, but don't get too carried away. We're going to slap you down. I see an effort to allow the states to do things, to have their regional idiosyncrasies, to or prerogatives, prerogatives, but to not get too carried away that in fact this is a national government that we are creating, correct? And that national government, in the end, to quote the Constitution, is supreme. And you states, you can say what you want, you can argue about this or that, etc. But in the end, you have to bow down to this national Constitution. And I think that's something that I. I don't see much in today's debate. States, I mean, California, New York are examples of that right now. They're trying to get their way against a 
the Trump administration. Sure. And it used to be the southern states would do that against the Obama administration. And, and that's all appropriate. There's vows to do that. There's opportunities to do that under the Constitution. But in the end, looking at the Constitution, in the end, the U.S. government's going to win. And it's going to win every time. And, so I, and I didn't maybe realize, that's why you need a well-regulated militia. <laughs> maybe, Second Amendment. <laughs> maybe, but, but that's why you need the freedom of speech, the freedom of religion, the freedom of press, the freedom of assembly to stand up and be heard in that context. Sure. But I think one of the big surprises for me in going through this, in reading the words of the Constitution and explaining them and listening to your perspective on it was that the framers in the end wanted to crack down on the states. Yeah. That And the framers in the end, we, we have this idea that states and the federal government were equal. Not in the framers' mind. No. The framers wanted the national government to succeed. But from that debate, there's people that left thinking, hey, we've maintained state sovereignty. Right, and I think they were fooled. I think they, I think they were sold a bill of goods. Yeah, and I think they got sucked in because they made compromises over slavery. Yeah, and so the lobbying interest outweighed the political practicality of all things. Yeah, and they were willing to go along with it. It's interesting. Um, you know, I, I deal a lot with the U.S. Civil War in the Trans Mississippi. Mm-hmm. All right, in a forthcoming book, I will be describing the Trans-Mississippi Confederacy's flirtations with the French Empire as part of the narrative. And northern lawmakers pointed out that this was the first time Americans were willing to set aside a Republican form of government in order to ally themselves and even offer to be annexed by a foreign power that was a monarchy. That's amazing. It is amazing. That's crazy. And uh, crazy talk. We we rarely appreciate how fragile this thing is. Yeah. And you know we hear about that um, every now and then. You hear people, for example, today in today's debate. You hear from some Democrats saying that this democracy is fragile and that President Trump is trying to ruin it. Um, you go back and you hear from other sides. You know, sure. it's, it's just part and parcel. Obama's of trying to wreck this fragile democracy. Yeah, sure. exactly, exactly. My sense out of this is that our democracy, our institutions, are really strong. Well, they are, but they're strong in a sort of mutually supportive scaffolding sort of way yeah. as opposed to a big granite megalith right, right it's i wouldn't use the word fragile but i would say that like anything else you have to take care of it yeah and you really need to take care of it um you know on my radio show yesterday i had a state representative yeah uh, on on the show and we were talking callers were calling in and a couple of callers just complained about this state representative and his political party. I don't want to go into any of that in particular, but they were complaining about how slow it was, <laughs> how hard it was to get things done. And the state representative said in the Austin legislative session, there were 7,000 bills that were introduced 
and a thousand passed. And yet, so that's what, 15, 16%, whatever it is. Yeah. And yet people were complaining that nothing got done. We had 181 people sit there and argue for four months, and they got through a 1,000 bills. And I'm sitting there looking at it going, that's an awful lot of bills that they passed. Maybe that's too much. And I'm looking at it going, thank goodness I only meet every other year. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> They'd be passing hundreds exactly. of thousands of bills. But what were the complaints? The complaints were, you guys aren't fast enough. You're not working enough. Thank You're goodness. ignoring the will of the people. And it's like, wait a second. What are we talking about here? Yeah. Well, again, that's that sort of slow motion revolution. Yeah. So... <laughs> Thank goodness we do not rule by whim. Yes. The process is designed to be slow. You know, Winston Churchill's democracy is the worst form of government, except for all the others. Yes, correct. Um, this government we have is not pretty, okay? Politics is not pretty. It's For most people, it's not fun. It's ugly. They don't want to look at it. Another caller on the show yesterday talked about the old saying of sausage making. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. And it's just we not that. Yeah. yeah, it's just not pretty at all. But at the same time, it allows us to have our debates. It allows us to work with others. It allows us to disagree with others to accomplish some things. Yes. And thank goodness we can't accomplish course, them all. Yeah, otherwise I think we would lose all our freedoms. I think we would too. And that to me is really frightening. I think one group would take away the freedoms of the other, and then the other group, once they got into power, would try to take away, you know. Yeah. Absolutely. We had two callers yesterday who were angry about daylight savings time. Okay. <laughs> Man, and the list of things to be angry about, that's way down my list of priorities. Yet to the callers, it was so important yeah. that Texas get off that standard where we change time in the spring and the yeah. fall. And, you know, the state legislature was looking and saying, you know, it just didn't have the support of the people. And he said, what we have is an angry constituency that wants it, but without those people going and talking to all the state legislatures and building up support. Yeah. It's not going to happen. Just making a call to a radio show in Abilene, Texas is not no. going to accomplish yeah. it. And so you have two options. Yeah. Either build your grassroots. Exactly. Or move to Arizona. <laughs> or Indiana. Or, the or wherever they have no daylight savings yeah, exactly. Time. Yeah. You know, move to some place where you can be 100% happy on that issue. Yeah. Now, you're not going to like other issues. Yeah. The barbecue in Indiana, for, for instance, is inferior. <laughs> but, and that'll probably end up in the comment section. But. You know, pick your right. Pick the issue that you want to be wound up about. Right. And why don't we think about larger, loftier issues? Right. Than that, unless you're arguing a constitutional point. But wait a second. Yes. Why should they pick loftier issues when this is something that affects people twice a year? Well, that's my and, point. And is it may have constitutional implications. It may have constitutional implications. It may have just practical implications. Unfortunately, what is the job of lawmakers? It's to, in essence, I hate to say it, regulate our lives. Well, sure. And So, so the you, less they do, the better, I would think. Well, but, absolutely. So daylight savings time person needs to figure out how to connect those dots and yeah. make a grown-up argument. <laughs> 
I'll let you tell them that yeah. next time you're on <laughs> yeah. the radio show, Don. Use, use your big people voice. <laughs> but, you know, I could say that for, you know, a bunch of people on Facebook, too. Oh, yeah. You know, yeah. it's time to use your grown-up voice. But at least that conversation gets had. Yes. You know, I uh, took students over to Rome in Italy and mm-hmm. studied a lot about Italian fascism. Yeah. And the thing that happened when Mussolini took power is Italians who are known to be expert arguers quit arguing with each other. Yeah, they shut up. They shut up because people would turn them over to the thought police. Yeah. And when we get to the point where we're starting to turn each other over to the thought police, that's when our democracy starts to yeah. – that, that's strong yet delicate – yeah, uh, begins to lose its um, strength and cohesion. Yeah. Well, as a grandchild of people who yeah. fled Mussolini. And as the great nephew of a guy who bounced back and died within <laughs> 50 miles of his home village fighting fascism. Yeah. Yes. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Um the genius of the Constitution, and and I'm not sure we really captured it, but the genius of the Constitution is it uses political power to control political power. And the political power that we have in our ability to argue, to speak, to write. We the to, people you're talking about. We the people, to make calls to state legislators, to talk on Facebook – to have Twitter wars yeah. about the definition of racism is, in fact, a real check on the power of government. Amen. And there are many checks built into this Constitution on the government. And for that, I'm so grateful to the, fr- to the, fr- to the founders for building those in, for yeah. allowing it to happen. Case in point, Madison's rescuing of— uh, <laughs> the twenty seventh amendment keeping those guys from voting themselves a raise. I mean, it's amazing. Two hundred years after the fact, he comes back from the grave. Hey, hey, don't don't be a knucklehead. Yeah, can't get that raise without going to the people. Um, enjoy your hundred and seventy four thousand dollar a year salary. That's right. So how? What am I jealous or something? <laughs> <laughs> you can be college president. Um, so what do we leave with our our listeners, our viewers? The people that have waded into this. And, you know, this this may be the hook that gets them into our project, too. Yeah. What are we, I mean, what are we trying to do here? I think it's, uh, it goes back to what you brought up at the very beginning of this last segment, civil discourse. Um, my hope is that people learn a little bit more about the Constitution so that they can engage with and in our government. Yes. And participate in its debates to make this country better. One, Go, you know, goes back to the yeah. preamble of the Constitution to form a more perfect union. Yes. And, you know, I would say that was the union of the states, but, you know, we go on and on. But one thing I do bring up in class repeatedly when people talk about the government did this and the government did that and blah, 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 the government. I stop them. I say, all right, 
Let's say you were going to send the government a Christmas card. Okay. <laughs> what address would you put on the envelope? Oh, Don. And they go, well, we would put... Um, um, 1600 Pennsylvania, Pennsylvania Avenue, Avenue, maybe. Yeah, the White said, House. Why wouldn't you put yeah, Capitol why, Hill on there? Why I mean, wouldn't why, you put Supreme Court? Why wouldn't you put the And they all go, well, and, and I said, then why wouldn't you just put your home address on there? Yeah. Because according to this document, you are the government fool. Yeah. <laughs> and so, you know, if you've got a problem with the government, you've got a problem with yourself. And this is a point that I think, you know, we talked earlier about creeping federalism. Yes. There has been a gradual expansion of government powers that in many of our minds have divorced us from the government. So the government is them and it's not us. But this document, the government's supposed to be us. Correct. Yeah. That's a pretty good way to end it. All right, Don Frazier. Paul Fabrizio, thank you. Thank you. And thanks for hanging with us all the way through this uh, project. If you haven't begun the project and this is your first taste of it, dive in. It's important. Amen. Thanks.